to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. Twenties, it's good to see you guys again. Uh, thank you for being here. I know they already said it, but it is a frozen tundra outside. So getting your car to start is not a guarantee. Uh, I was just talking about that with some other people. I was telling them, I was like, you know that fearful moment when you get in the car and you rev it and it goes, and then it starts and you're like, oh, Lord, thank you. I feel like that's happened to me several times this week. And so again, thank you for braving the cold. I know it was a little warmer. And it's supposedly it's supposed to like rain all next week and, and it'll all go away. But it is good for us to be here tonight. It really is. And if we've not met before, I know maybe a couple of you are new. Uh, my name is Alex Duncan. I serve as the kids pastor and also as the 20s pastor here at Redeemer. And I wanted to start our time off this evening uh, with a little show and tell. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, I got something to show you guys. I'm very proud of this. But this plant is not just decor. For, uh, for the stage. This is actually my plant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea how much that applause is deserved. I have never owned a plant before. This is a live plant. Uh, it does not have a name. I'm not someone who names plants. If you are, that's okay. It's just not for me. Um, but the story behind this plant is I was given it a couple months ago as a gift when I moved into my new office. And so uh, somebody gave it to me and they said, you have to water it every Wednesday, water Wednesdays, this whole thing. And uh, so far we've gotten along pretty well. I've really, I've really enjoyed this thing. It brings a lot of life to my office. But here's what I want you guys to imagine. I want you to imagine uh, if I were to take these scissors and I were to find just the tallest, you know, most beautiful branch and I were just to cut it right off. <laughs> no. Right, okay, I'm not actually going to do it. I thought I had this terrible moral dilemma. Do I actually cut it off for them? I'm not going to. <laughs> the person who gave it to me would kill me. But I want you to imagine that I did. Let's say I just cut off the top of this branch, and then I put it back over here on the stage, and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that tall branch, and we're going to leave it right next to the plant. We're going to watch it for three weeks to see if it grows. Would it be a fruitful experiment? I'd ha- the answer is no. I'd have to put it in the soil and water. But let's say for the, sake of this, for the sake of this kind of thought experiment, I cut it off and I leave it there. And we all watch to see if it's going to grow. Uh, three weeks later, we would not find that, right? It would be completely the opposite. Instead of having fruit, instead of growing, the branch would probably wither up and it would probably die. I mean, we would all expect that to happen, wouldn't we? And so why would we think it is any different when it comes to our walk with Christ? Why would we think it's different? My title for this sermon is Bearing Much Fruit. And the main point I want to sit on this evening is that Jesus longs for his disciples to be joyful and effective in their ministry. That's the main idea of our text. So hang on to it. Jesus Christ longs for his disciples to be joyful and effective in their ministry. 
which is to glorify his name. Now, why is that important for us to know? Well, the reason it is important is because many of us struggle to be joyful and effective in ministry. And before we read the text, I briefly want to highlight three ways I see this play out. This is just my perspective, but generally, uh, there are three ways where people struggle to be joyfully effective in ministry. And the first is where a believer is joyful, but ineffective. Joyful, but ineffective. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I went to Moody Bible, and there were a lot of guys who I met that were joyful, but ineffective. And these would be guys who were brand new to the faith. And so they come in and they're just on fire for Jesus. If you ever met someone like this, you love these people. They're the best. They're like, man, I just want to talk about Jesus. I don't care that it's two in the morning. And you're like, leave me. <laughs> but they're, they, they're great to be around. But here's the problem. They're on fire for Jesus. They want to they share. They want to evangelize. But they lack the maturity and they lack the ability to have high impact for the kingdom. And usually what I would see happen is if these guys didn't grow, uh, they would have attempt after attempt after attempt and there would be nothing to show for it. And so those same guys would start to wither away. And maybe you felt that before, you know, joyful, passionate about Christ, but ineffective. And that's a pitfall we can slip into. And the second one uh, is completely the opposite. So the first is joyful but ineffective. The second one I see is that people in the church can be very effective but lack joy. And they have no joy. Uh, and I think the, the stereotype I would kind of give for this is this is the one that the older ladies in the church love to talk to. And what they do is they come to you, oh, sweetie, you're so gifted. Oh, it's so awesome when we hear you singing on stage. Oh, we love you so, you know so much Bible. Oh, I have a grandson. You know, like they will come and they gush over you, gush over you. And really, this is the person who has heard how gifted they are and how effective they are in ministry their entire lives. But if you go even an inch under the surface, they have no joy in it. In fact, it's the opposite. And the sad truth is that they are either anxious about serving God or they're irritated by it. And the only reason they're doing it is because they've always been doing it. And some of you know what that is like. Outwardly, you are an oasis, but inwardly, your soul is just a desert. <laughs> that is one of the pitfalls we can fall into. And that leads me to the last one, which is just a combination of both. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, I have no joy and I'm not effective. <laughs> and then I would say, bummer, <laughs> you know, like. But in all reality, that is a terrible place to be. And there's a lot of us who fall into that category. In fact, I would say that's probably the most common category. People who say, I don't have joy and I don't feel like I'm doing anything for God. It's almost uh, the thought that came into my mind. It's like asking someone to dig a hole to China, but they can't even lift a shovel. It's doubly discouraging, right? And so this can easily drive you to stop serving Christ altogether, which inevitably creates a shriveled up spiritual life. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a heavy place to land. And so those are the three ways I would see. Those are my three warnings for us tonight. Uh, joyful, but ineffective. Effective, but no joy. And then ineffective and unjoyful. Each of us are susceptible to those in our own ways. And you know what those are. But the good news is that if you find yourself in any of those places, you can trust that that is not where God wants you to be and that he has provided a way out. I mean, when you look at scripture, the clear message that comes across 
everywhere you read is that God does not want any shriveling branches in his church. Right? He doesn't want any little twigs that are dying and have leaves falling off that you have to throw in the garbage. I wouldn't want that plant in my office, would you? I don't think so. And so God is not going to leave us in that place. He wants strong branches that are bearing much fruit. And that means he wants us to be like the man that's found in Psalm 1. It says that he is firmly planted like a tree by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. That is what God wants to create in your life. He wants you to be an oak of righteousness that is joyful and effective in glorifying his name. And he's gonna teach us how to do that and how to be that tonight through the illustration of a vine and its branches. And so that's the other reason why I use my plant. It fits the theme of our text. And so again, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 15. Uh, You may already be there, but that's where we're gonna be tonight. John chapter 15. And I'm gonna read it for us, starting in verse one and going through to verse 11. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That is God's word for us tonight. Christ wants his disciples to be joyful and effective. It's a very beautiful message. And in it, in this passage, what you have is the last I am statement that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. So there are seven of these uh, I am statements. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but I do wanna give a couple examples. Uh, One would be when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right after feeding the 5,000. Another one would be when he said, I am the light of the world. And then even up to the most recent one, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, these statements are all pronouncements of identity, which means that they tell us something about who our Savior is. And here in the last one, Jesus says, I am the vine. And even more than that, I am the true vine. And it is a very significant thing for him to say. And to fully understand what Christ means when he says, I am the true vine, we have to recognize who the author is writing to. This is really key. In the Gospel of John, the author, who is John, is writing to Jews who live outside of Israel. So that's the the main audience is Jewish people. And this is important to know because to them, 
the vine imagery would have had a deeper meaning baked into it than it naturally does for us. And why is that? Well, historically speaking, the Jews all associated vine imagery with their nation. And the reason why they kind of correlated Israel with the vine is because that is how the Old Testament describes them. Right? I want to give a couple examples. In Psalm 80, David calls Israel a vine taken out of Egypt. He's talking about the nation. Later on, the prophet Isaiah describes Israel as the vineyard of God. Right? So more vines. And then when you get to Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 21, God himself is speaking, and he calls Israel the noble vine that he planted. And so you see it again and again and again. Israel is the vine. The vine is Israel. And that's what the Jews would have heard up, uh, grown up hearing their, their whole lives. And what's noteworthy about it for us is the fact that every time the Old Testament describes Israel as the vine, this is so key. Every time they're referred to as the vine, it is always in the context of their failure to bear fruit. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, when they are called the vine, God quickly condemns them for, bearing, for not bearing fruit. Uh, even in Jeremiah chapter 2, which I already mentioned, God uh, calls Israel noble vine, but in the same verse he goes on to say, Yet I planted you, Israel, a noble vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So in other words, God is saying, I planted you healthy, but now you have no fruit. Do you guys see how that's kind of working out here? Because that's the overarching story of the Old Testament. And this is key for us to understand. God took Israel out of Egypt and he planted them as a vine in Canaan. And the reason he did that was because he wanted them to bear fruit and to bless the nations around them. We see that in the Abrahamic covenant, that they were to be a blessing to the nations. But then time and time again, you see that Israel fails at that mission. Instead of being a light to the nations around them, they are sucked in to the paganism and to the godlessness around them. And they start to worship false gods, false idols, and they trade the true God for the things that cannot satisfy them. And so now... When we kind of take all that, we come back to our text. John, through the words of Christ, wants the Jews and all of us to understand that even though Israel failed as the vine, God's plan for blessing the Gentiles did not. So this is, this is like understanding all of scripture right here. What's going on? Israel was supposed to bless everyone and they failed, right? If you only read the Old Testament and you didn't have the, the, the prophecies of the Messiah, it would be a failed mission, because the nations are not blessed at the end of it. But that's not where it ends. Because in contrast to the failed vine of Israel, Jesus Christ presents himself as the true vine who perfectly accomplishes his father's work and then now produces good fruit in us. Is that not amazing? That our God does the job that none of us can. And then he helps us out when we are struggling. I mean, that to the Jews would have been mind-boggling. They're reading this for the first time all around the world. And they're saying, whoa, it's Christ. The mission's still going forward. And the danger for them would have been that they would assume they were already a part of this vine because of their nationality. John is pointing out that is not the case. To be alive, the Jews had to be in Christ, not in national Israel. And for those of us who are not Jews, the exact same thing is true. To be alive, we must be in Christ, and it can't be in anything else. 
I mean, we have to put our faith and our hope in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It can't be in our works. It can't be in our families. It can't be in our jobs. It can't be in anything. It has to be in Christ. And if we're faithful to do that, I love what it says in Romans 11. It says that we are then grafted into the vine as an act of God's grace. It's almost like we started out already cut off from the branch, but then God as the tender gardener puts us back in and we're grafted. But that is the precondition for bearing much fruit. So you can't have fruit if you're cut off from the vine. That's why I'm starting with this. Because if you're not in Christ, then everything else I'm about to say tonight does not really apply to you. It starts with being in the vine, but how does it actually work after that happens? <laughs> For those of us in Christ, how can we bear much fruit? And how can we be joyfully effective in our mission? Well, point number one, we have to let the vine dresser prune us. Let the vine dresser prune you. I don't know if any of you are gardening people, I am not, <laughs> so I had to do some research this week. Uh, but typically, vine dressers do two things to ensure a healthy plant. The first is they cut off dead branches and take them away. And then the second thing they do is they cut back healthy ones so that they would produce more fruit in their season. And as I looked into it, the general consensus among gardeners is that the harder the pruning, the greater the beauty that is later released. And in verses one and two, this text, that is exactly how Christ describes the work of his father in our lives. I'm gonna read it again, just the first two verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so the two functions of the vine dresser are clearly there for us to see, Right? God, as the vine dresser, he takes away dead branches and then he prunes the healthy ones. And starting with that first one, we really see that it is part of God's work to get rid of the dead wood so that the living, fruit-bearing branches may have more room to grow. And taking that imagery to reality, this means that part of God's work in the church is to remove false Christians so that the body remains healthy. And if that's something that you don't think is true, then I would just bring Judas Iscariot to you as an example. I mean, he was a dead branch that was hanging on to the vine. He was with Christ the whole time, but there was no actual life in him. And then God, in an act of grace, removed him. But that wasn't the only time this has happened. In fact, God is still doing this today. He's still cutting off dead branches in his church. And he does it primarily through something called church discipline. And this is where elders biblically remove someone from the church. And they don't just like do this willy-nilly. It's not like they wake up and they're like, ah, I didn't like that shirt. You're out, right? John, Pastor John does not have that power. <laughs> or maybe he does, but I haven't been told that. So anyways, they can't do that biblically. Instead, it only happens after an individual is confronted on sin and they are unrepentant. And so there's a very clear process for this in scripture where uh, your brother is in sin, you approach him one-on-one -on -one and you conf confront him. If he is uh, unrepentant, it says take a brother with you and then con confront that person. And if they still don't, then bring it to the elders to the church. And if they still don't, then you remove them. 
God calls elders to remove unrepentant people from the church for two reasons. The first is so that they might be saved and then also so that the church might be healthy because the fate of a dead branch is described ultimately in verse six of this passage. It says, if anyone does not abide abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. I mean, and that might sound like really harsh to our ears that God or a church would do this. They would remove someone from the church. And we think that way until we realize that it is for their benefit. Like this is for the good of that person who is in sin. And I think 1 Corinthians chapter five is a huge passage that you need to know in order to understand this. Uh, There, what you find is that Paul was dealing with a church discipline issue. Uh, I'm not gonna get into it, but there was a man who was in clear sexual sin and he was unrepentant. Again and again, this man had been confronted. And so here's what Paul told the church to do. He said, deliver that man to Satan for destruction. Can you imagine somebody saying that about you? Deliver that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul was not just being vindictive here. He was not just trying to hurt this man. Instead, he wanted him to be saved from his sin and he wanted the church to be healthy. And part of what was going to save that man was the fact that the church would care enough to remove him, saying something's wrong here. That's why the guy had to go. And that's why we can rejoice in God's work of clearing out dead branches. We know it's for good. But that's not all he does as the vine dresser. That's only his first function. The second is that he also prunes healthy branches in order that the disciples may bear more fruit and experience more joy, God is going to prune their lives. And literally what this means for us is that God Almighty looks at our lives and he takes the divine shears and he comes up to our souls and he cuts them down all the way again and again and again, sometimes to the very root. But the reason he does this is so that you would produce more fruit. So even though it is a painful thing, It is a good thing. It is a good thing that we experience pain and we go through that process because we become more beautiful and our faith becomes more effective. But exactly how does God prune our lives? Well, primarily there are two ways. I think this is key because when I read it, I thought of one, but I kind of missed the other. The first way that God prunes us is through his word. And this is the one that I overlooked, but it is actually the more important and the more effective one. As we read scripture and the Holy Spirit applies it to us, we naturally become more authentic in our Christian lives and in our Christian witness. So if you want to be pruned, if you want to let the vine dresser prune you, read the Bible. Be a Bible person. That's what you should do. And I love uh, what Charles Spurgeon had to say about John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a Puritan and Charles Spurgeon was with one of his friends And he was describing John Bunyan. He said, you know, if you cut that man, he will bleed scripture. I wonder if that could be said of us. If I cut you, would you bleed scripture? Friends, if we are going to bear fruit, and if you want to be effective and glorifying God, then you need to bleed the scriptures. (laughs) And so don't neglect reading God's word. When we wake up, it should be one of the first things we do every day. Before we hear from anyone else, we should be hearing from God. He will use that to make us more fruitful. And if that's not enough, 
then he will use another method to prune our hearts. And this is the second way he does it, which is through hard circumstances and trials. I think it's implied in the illustration, but pruning is naturally a painful process. (laughs) And Christ wants us to understand that God in his grace will use suffering in our lives to cut out the useless fat that gets in the way of our fruitfulness. And if you've ever been through those trials before, you know that it is not a very pleasant experience. I think of what Hebrews 12, 11 says. There it says that none of these trials appear pleasant at the time, but painful. That's true. If God is using life to prune you, it is a painful thing. But I love what the author of Hebrews goes on to say, because that's not the full verse. The full verse says no discipline, no trial seems pleasant at at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Isn't that good? God is hungry for fruit from his vine, and in order to produce it, he will often cut deeper than we would ever have chosen. I mean, that's why he didn't take away Paul's thorn in the flesh. I think about that. Paul begged God three times, take it away, take it away, take it away. You want to know why God didn't? Because he wanted more uh, fruit to come out of Paul. And for some of you, you want to know why you're suffering? You want to know why God let you suffer in the past? It's because he wants more fruit out of you. And he's going to use suffering to get that. So learn to rejoice in the trials and let the vine dresser prune you. Even though it hurts, it is good. Not because suffering is good, it isn't. It's evil, it's a result of the fall, but God still uses it and suffering is good because our God is good. And the deeper he cuts us, the more beautiful and the more abundant the fruit in our lives becomes. So that's a different way to think about suffering. When you're in it, one, it feels like it's overwhelming. Two, you can't even care about other people. But three, if you're able to press this into your heart, all of a sudden you sit there and you say, man, I can't, I can't wait to see how you're going to use this someday, God. I can't wait how, to see how you're going to let me counsel someone because they're going through it and I've already survived it. It's a total mindset change when suffering is now a vehicle for us to bear much fruit. It requires pruning, but that's not the only thing. It also requires that you abide in the true vine. This is my second point. Abide in the true vine. Uh, coming back to the vine imagery, Uh, It should be clear to us that no branch has life in itself. Again, it's what I said at the beginning. If we cut one off, it would shrivel up and die. Uh, It would not produce any fruit. And guess what? That is true of us spiritually. Anything that is cut off from the vine is unable to produce fruit. Why? Because life pulsates through the vine into the branches. It's not the other way around. Life does not go from the branch into the tree. It goes from the tree into the branch. And so the branch is utterly dependent for life and fruitfulness on the vine. And that is how Christ describes his relationship to us, especially in verses four and five. And so I want to read those again. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. In case we're missing the point, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing, he says. What's interesting and really what should jump out at us in this whole passage is the word abide. Uh, It changes depending on your translation, but it uses it roughly nine or 10 times 
again and again. You see abide and abide and abide. And what that word means, uh, it means that you remain in. You continue in. You stay in. And as I was thinking of an illustration, what came to my mind was sitting in a sauna. Have any of you ever done that before? Okay. How many of you are like, man, that sounds really good when it's like negative 20 outside. (laughs) It's probably what brought it to my mind. But every once in a while, I'll go with a couple of the guys and we'll all, you know, hop in the sauna. And as we're in there, inevitably what happens is we start playing a game. And nobody ever says anything. Nobody ever like says, oh, we're going to play this game. But the game is who can stay the longest. (laughs) It's just a guy thing. (laughs) It's like you're in there and you you think to yourself, I do not want to be the first one to go out. And I'll confess, I usually am, <laughs> which is terrible. I can't be in there very long. But the, the point behind that is that as you're sitting there, you want to be the one who remains. You want to continue to stay in the room. You want to abide in the room, but it's work. And I think that captures what Jesus is saying here when he says abide. It is something that you have to work at to do, right? Even though I'm just sitting when I'm in a sauna, I'm not doing physically anything really, it's still hard for me to endure it and to stay in it. And I think there's something similar about that to how Christ calls us to abide. You don't get to just go on cruise control and say, oh yeah, I'm in Jesus. You know what happens? You immediately go off the road. It's like falling asleep. You have to be actively engaged in abiding in Christ. That is what you see. It is a verb and it is a command. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Nine times. Jesus is going to say that. It's because he, he wants us to be working towards this. He wants us to be working towards actively engaging in the vine. And so how do we do that? As I was studying, uh, I found a guy named Bruce Milne, very helpful, very helpful here. Uh, he is a theologian. And as he kind of was working through this passage, he noted the progression of abiding in Christ is fourfold. And here are the four steps he laid out. He said that to abide in Christ is first to depend on him. Second, it is to commune with him. Third, it is to submit to him. And then fourth, it is to obey him. And I agree with that. And so if you're wondering, okay, abiding in Christ is something I have to work at, right? It's the steam room. I gotta stay in it, which by the way, has benefits, just like abiding in the vine, right? I'm working towards this thing. Well, how do I do that? Well, it's those four things. It means you need to be depending on Christ. You know what that means? It means you need to stop depending on yourself or other people. A lot of us are trusting in ourselves too much. Depending in Christ is saying, Lord, I am not enough. I am weak. I'm gonna fail at this. I was trying to remind myself of that before I got up here to preach. God, I am a fool and I will stumble and I will not help anyone if I depend on me. I need to depend on you. It's a recognition of weakness. That's the first thing. And then as you do that, you need to commune with God, right? We need to commune with Christ. This is actually one of the steps in the path of discipleship, commune with God. And what does it mean? It means you're reading his word, you're meditating on it, you're, you're praying, you're memorizing it, you're hearing from what, from what God has to say to you and then talking back to him. It's a relationship. And then as you do that, it says that you will submit to him. You will get before the throne. You will drop on your knees and you will cast your crown before him. That's submission. It's saying, God, here are all my desires. Here are all my hopes, all my dreams, everything. And I'm saying, not my will, your will be done. Submission, which then leads to faithful obedience. I think that's a very clear picture of what it looks like for us to abide in Christ. 
And so that's what you need to do. You must depend, commune, submit, and obey. And then you need to wake up the next morning and do it again. And again, and the day after that, and every day until Christ comes back to get us or he calls us to go be with him. Our entire lives, that is what it should look like. The church, and by extension, 20s, we should be made up of people who depend on our God, people who commune with our God, people who submit to our God, and people who obey our God. That is our mission, that we are people who want to abide. We want to be in the vine. And you know what? That can sound kind of dreary. I was thinking about that. I was like, man, marching orders. Boom, boom, boom. Dreary. That's what it looks like to the world. And even to us sometimes, until you get to verse 11. I want you to look at that. Here's what Jesus has to say. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Better yet, better translation, that your joy may be complete. Friends, did you know that Christ's desire for your life is that his joy would fill you to the point where it could no longer be contained? His joy is infinite, it is radiant, and he wants it to be yours. And it doesn't matter where you came in from tonight. He wants you to be able to say with King David, my cup overflows. It is running over with joy because Christ is mine. Oh, 20s, this is good news that we can be the ones who possess the joy of Christ, our Savior. I was just trying to sit in that this week. Lord, I don't have enough of that. I want more. But what is it? What is joy? The joy of Christ that completes us? Well, it's verse nine of this passage. We're working our way back. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Translation, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the joy of Christ that he shares with us. It is the infinite love of God that is given to the son, which then he gives to us and it is displayed in the cross where he died for our sins. It's interesting to me that even in that, there are many illustrations we use to describe God's love to each other. You know, I've heard people say, you know, God's love, it's like a mother's love for her children. You know, so great that she would cast herself in front of the car to get the kid out of the way. I've heard that, you know, God's love is like a husband's affection for his wife. He's just raptured. Even in scripture, you see that. But you know what this passage teaches us? None of those are adequate comparisons. The only example, the only comparison that is sufficient to do the job to show us what Christ's love is like toward us is the same love that the Father has for the Son. That is the only illustration that is true all the way. It is God's love for his Son that is now shown to us and therefore this love is impossible for us to ever fully comprehend. I mean, we could lose ourselves for years just trying to wrap our minds around the love of God. I mean, I think we should even try that right now. Try to wrap your mind around the thought. I was thinking about this before. Try to wrap your mind around the thought that there is a father 
who shares infinite love with the Son, so much so that he created all of existence, everything we see, including us, just to exalt that love and to make him more glorified. And then take that love and apply it to yourself. That's what Jesus did at the cross. That's why it is so radical to us and so beautiful to us. That's why Peter can say to the church, I love this. He says, you love Christ even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. And that is my hope for 20s, is that you would get to walk away tonight and say, I have a joy that is glorious and inexpressible. And it casts out every bit of darkness that this world has. And that is the fire that will then enable you to be effective and joyful in ministry. That's what God wants for us. God is not a terrible overlord ruling against us. He is the one who wants your joy. And the way we get to that is through abiding in the vine. But it also comes through one last step that I see in this passage, and that is prayer. My first point was to let the vine dresser prune you. The second was to abide in the true vine. And now point number three is do it from a posture of prayer. Praying is what strengthens our joy and effectiveness in ministry. And in verse seven of this passage, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Anything you ask, I'll give it to you. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, name it, claim it? Man, God, I want that. It's mine now. Not exactly. I think this is a verse that gets misquoted and misapplied very often. And the key to understanding it correctly is that this verse is spoken within the context of God's mission. And it's spoken within the context of us submitting to his will. Right? Jesus here is charging the disciples to spread the gospel around the world. And so what he is actually promising them is that if you abide in me, and as a result, pray for the things that I desire, namely fruitfulness in ministry and greater joy, then I will give those things to you. And so that's the promise we are to take away. And uh, personally, I wish this was something I had known earlier in my life. Because if you do not recognize this, you will just pray for the wrong things. And uh, <laughs> I remember in sixth, sixth grade, we had just moved to Kansas City. And I had, uh, we all have guilty pleasures. Mine was a giant plush Squirtle doll. So talking Pokemon here. This is so random. God's exposing me. Um, there's this giant plush Squirtle doll, Squirtle doll. And at the time, Pokemon was kind of big to my life. And so I love this thing. <laughs> You're learning more about me. I love Pokemon. I had this thing and I don't know what possessed me, but I remember distinctly getting on my hands and knees and praying that God would bring it to life. <laughs> and, and the reason why this is so terrible, but I remember it was not just one night. I prayed consistently for several nights in a row. I'm on my hands and knees and I'm like, Lord, I'll never ask for anything. Just give me this one thing. I was like consumed with a thought of prayers effective, you know, and I just kept praying and uh, obviously, I was devastated when nothing happened. <laughs> uh, it is embarrassing even when I look back on it now. But the thing about it is, even as, as I laugh, I, I still 
make prayers like that sometimes only with a bit more grown-up of a request. And that matters because some of you are here tonight and you're disappointed because you've been praying to God for a long time about something and he hasn't given it to you. And to that, I would challenge you on whether or not your request is actually one that's glorifying to God and in accordance with his will. The truth is we need to pray better prayers. And we should pray that God would use us to glorify his name. And we should pray that we would have chances to share the gospel. We should pray for more fruit and more joy in our walk with Christ. We should pray for each other. Those are the things we should be praying for. Things that are glorifying to God, not things that are self-serving and worthless. And that's not to say that God will delay good prayers and answer them in ways we don't expect, but how often, if we're honest, have we prayed for things like Squirtle? <laughs> Just dumb things. And like, we laugh, like by God's grace, I'm far away enough now to laugh at it. But there are some that are really close to me that I would be ashamed to tell you. Things that I've prayed for that are selfish. We need to be better. We need to pray things that are honoring to the Lord. And so is that what you pray for? Do you pray God-honoring prayers? Because that is what allows you to bear much fruit. It's a combination of pruning, abiding, and prayer. Taken together, those are what allow us to be joyful and effective in the mission to glorify God. And the disciples needed to understand that before Christ left. That's why he's telling it to them. And we need to understand it now. Our great purpose and mission in this life is to magnify the name of Jesus wherever we are and whatever we are doing. I think of the catechism, what is the chief end of man? Anyone know it? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, we exist to magnify God. That's why we were made. And... Uh, I love John Piper talks a lot about this, but he says there are two errors we can make. Uh, one, there's one error we can make, one really big one we can make when we think about magnifying God. And that is because there are two ways to magnify something. He said, you can magnify like a telescope or a microscope. One is wickedness, the other is worship. And here's what he means by that. He says that if you magnify something with a microscope, it means that you are taking what is small and making it bigger than it is. And if we pretend to magnify God that way, it is sin. It is false. But if you magnify like a telescope, it is completely different. Because with a telescope, you take something that is unimaginably great and far off, and you make it look like what it really is. And when Piper talks about it, he always uses the illustration of the Hubble Space Telescope. He says it's what, it's what NASA uses to reveal all the galaxies and the skies for the billion star giants that they are. Right? We can barely see the stars at night. But when you get a telescope, all of a sudden you realize, man, that thing is larger than life. Right? It would consume a billion worlds. A billion Earths would just disappear in it. And when we magnify God like that, it's worship. And when we step into that worship by faith, we experience our greatest joy in life. That's the mission. That's the goal. We want to magnify Christ. And selfishly, I want to do that because it brings me joy. And guess what? That's not selfish anymore because that's how God created me to be, to worship him. That was pre the fall. <laughs> and so that is the call of the Christian faith. It is a call to joy. 
It is a call to serve the king, and it is a call to bear much fruit in our lives. Each of us has the responsibility to either accept that call or to reject it. Those who reject it will be like the dead branches described in verse 6. They will be thrown into fire. And it is likely that some of you here in this room are even in that place. If that's you, then I would just say, our God miraculously brings dead things to life all the time. (laughs) Even now, you do not have to stay where you are. And God is able to graft you into the vine that is Christ by faith. It's putting your trust in his son tonight. Again, not in your works, not in your past, not in your parents, not in any of these things. It's saying, God, I'm weak and I need you. I need to be a part of the vine. And for those of us who are already in that grace, then we get the joy of abiding in the vine this week. And this is where I would challenge you. I would encourage you to be serious about it. If you're serious about wanting joy and you're serious about wanting to be effective in ministry, then be serious about abiding in Christ. When we remain in Jesus, that is when all the other things are unlocked. And so I would care less and less about, God, how am I going to say this thing to that person and start caring more about, God, do I know you? Did I read my Bible this morning? (laughs) Am I singing worship songs in the car or am I just singing pointless things? All those things, God uses that to produce joy and effectiveness. And that's what I want for 20s. I think that's what God wants for 20s. He doesn't want people who are joyful and ineffective. He doesn't want people who are just so gifted, but just dying on the inside. He doesn't want people who are neither. He wants joyful, effective servants. And that's what we aim to be, amen? All right, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that when we come to it, we see the true vine who is able to rescue us from our sins. God, the the vine that is able to not only rescue us from sin, but able to produce fruit in our lives. God, we are weak. We could do nothing good apart from you, but Lord, in you, we get to bear fruit. Lord, we get to have good things come from us into the lives of others. And Lord, that is our joy. Our joy is to watch other people be impacted by the gospel in us. God, our greatest treasure will always be to be useful in your hands. God, that's one of the greatest blessings we could ask for. Use us this week, I pray. And God, if there are any here who lack joy or feel ineffective, Lord, I pray that they would stop focusing on the symptoms and they would go to the root of the problem and see that they need to be abiding in you. Lord, they don't need to fix all the external things and then get to the heart. Lord, they start with the heart. It starts with the recognition that we are desperately wicked and we need you. And then everything else grows out of that, Lord. God, it blows my mind that you created plants. You created vines knowing that one day you would give us this illustration. The illustration, God, it came before eternity. You wanted something that would image to us what your son is doing right now. He is bearing life into us as we are in him. God, give us strength to continue to abide in him. Lord, and as we do that, give us greater joy. Lord, I ask that this week in 20s, your joy would be in us and that it would complete us. And that as that joy overflows, that others would be drawn to it, that they would want to be a part of that and that it would lead them to bend the knee and to give their lives to you. God, we ask that you would do this and we pray even now as we turn our hearts to worship that we would magnify your name, Lord, not by taking what is small and making it big, but Lord, taking what is beyond us 
And Lord, trying to grasp it in our fetal minds, Lord, which can barely do it. But by your spirit, Lord, give us a greater glimpse. Give us a greater glimpse of glory, Lord, I pray. And would it be pleasing to you as we raise our, soul, our voices in worship. God, do this all for your son, we pray. Amen.